Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. Romans chapter 6 is where we are. If you have your Bible, Romans chapter 6, we will stand and take verses 17 through 19. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Before I start to read, the title is connected to what we're going to read, hopefully. Obedience within. Beginning in verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Please be seated. Again, obedience within. Hatred for sin in Christ, that means for believers, because of Christ, indicates that the dominion of sin has ended. Now, physically, we will still commit sin. But in the heart, where it matters most, God looks at the heart. That has been dealt with. But that hatred's got to be there. It's a key indicator. Now, some try to use this teaching, um, this honest teaching, they try to use it dishonestly and exploit it. Act as though they have a license to sin. That sin is not as serious a matter with God as it really is. The Christian's hatred of their sin never dies. It is either flaming or smoldering, but it is there and it is hot. And Satan knows it. He doesn't want you to know that. Satan wants to control the truth. And he has a whole bunch of methods to try to do that. Well, it's going to be your foundation in the word that gets you to, to prevail in this life and be fruitful at the same time for the Lord in spite of your sinful nature. So our hatred for sin is directly linked to our loathe for disobedience to Christ. That's all the difference. And not wanting to be a sinner is not enough to stop being one. But this grace, where sin abounded, grace did much more. It has to be this way. Any other way, and Satan would pick us off. But we have been made clean by the blood of the Lamb, and God means every bit of it. Whether you feel it or not, it's by faith. Now, the unbeliever can hate what we know to be sin. They can hate failure. They can hate disease and killing and things like that. But Christ does not factor into their equation. And that's all the difference. It's what's within the heart. Is the heart obedient to the desires of God or outside of them? Christ makes this grand distinction. Matthew 25, verse 33, he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. How do you get to be a goat? How do you get to be a sheep? What's in the heart? 
Who's in there? Why? To love Christ is to hate sin. It is a basic formula. And it is true. But it belongs to all the revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. So with our heart we believe and love the Lord Jesus. With a fallen nature, we sin. This dichotomy amongst the believer is ongoing till death do us part. Satan, on the other hand, hates that we cling to Christ and that our hearts are obedient to him. That we intend fully to to trust and obey. We just can't. Always. So verse 17 again. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart. That form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Well, there it is right there. I'm not going to try to make that say what it doesn't, you know, something it doesn't say. It, It is clear to me. How thorough the work of God is in the life of the believer. And Satan works tirelessly to get us to give up the fight. He fears perseverance. He fears perseverance in the weary Christian. It happens to be one of the grand points of C.S. Lewis' book, Screwtape Letters, that the Christian in that story persevered to the end in spite of all the efforts of hell to get him not to. Well, C.S. Lewis just wrote that book based on his proper understanding of the salvation that we have. God's grace is never a violation of justice. It is a proper administration of mercy to cancel judgment. These are the spiritual laws that work. It is an antidote. The grace of God is an antidote for the judgment of sin. And the world is willing to accept the idea of an antidote for some sickness, for some physical poison. They're fine. Oh, yeah, give me the antidote. But what about the spiritual side of things, which we are? All are spiritual. Not all belong to Christ spiritually. It can be a sin to disagree that Christ and Christ alone forgives sin. And this is part of the message we can, we we must not fail to communicate in some form. The new nature cannot sin, though the old nature is carried away with sin. We covered this last session, but it has to be said again. Because again, our sense of justice can confuse us if we just look at it through natural eyes without the spiritual truths that are given to us in the Scripture. As I just read from verse 17, and I'll read again from other verses in a little while. This new nature cannot sin. Though with your hands and with your mind and with your tongue, you can This has an abstract shadow, but the substance is concrete. It is fact without contradiction. Behind the concept is the fact that it is finished, that Christ Jesus came into the world to die for sinners. Because there's nobody else. And it is more powerful, sin is, at times in my life, But it is not more powerful than the antidote. And mere acts of 
disobedience do not damn Christians. Well, I'll go farther. I'll go take that a little bit further. Mere acts of disobedience, mere acts, do not damn unbelievers. What damns them is a rejection of God of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what damns them. But they don't believe it, and there, there it is. They don't believe it, and that is the condemnation. So you drift towards sin, you and I do, but we never stop hoping to stop that drift, which is, again, a distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian, and ours is based on a relationship with God, not just on this realization that sin is an awful thing. And it is because of that new nature that we want to stop that drift. Grace does not completely stop us from sinning. It completely stops sin ability to send us to hell. It completely stops it. And that's why we're sin bounded. Grace did much more. It's beyond this life. And the only way around this is to be made perfect. But you can't be made perfect in the flesh, or be treated as perfect because of Christ, which is the life of the believer. 1 Corinthians tells us that the natural man has a problem with this. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot figure out God on his own. The natural man cannot drift into salvation. It has to be a hands-on arrangement, God's hands on the sinner, but not against the will of the sinner. God is a, what we would, could say a perfect gentleman in that regard. He stands at the door and knocks. He does not kick it in. He will not force you into heaven. What kind of heaven would that be? Yeah, I'm here. I didn't want to be here. Wasn't given a choice. Verse 15 now. Now we can start my timer. What then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. And so again, he's going to deal with the, the unbeliever who's made, or the, the troublemaker that will come along and say, well, what are you preaching? Lawlessness? So he interrupts himself with this rhetorical question. Here's an idea how it flows from verse 14 of Romans 6 to the first verse of Romans chapter 7. It really flows this way. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So the point I'm saying is he's, he's answering anticipated objections, mainly from the religious Jews, because they were familiar with the whole concept of sin before Yahweh. But there would be Gentiles, too, that would be perplexed about what Paul is saying if he doesn't roll it out a little bit more for them. Salvation is without nonsense. And so that's when he says, what shall we say? Shall, because we're un, uh, uh, shall we sin because we are not under the Mosaic law? That's what he's talking about. But under this New Testament grace? Of course not, he says. My sense of God's holiness and my unholiness, try as they may, causes conflict and confusion in my head to balance these things. What would have happened had Paul said, certainly, and didn't put the knot in there? But that knot ties sin up. Certainly not. 
It would have been a disaster if Paul said, of course, go out and sin all you want. Jesus said, Romans 8, 34, that someone's phone is ringing. <laughs> I don't feel bad. It happens. It's the, the age we live in. So I don't feel bad. <laughs> well, you should. <laughs> don't. So can, you get, can you go back to preaching the Bible? Well, in a little bit. But <laughs> All right, back to this. <laughs> my sense of God's holiness and my unholiness causes this conflict. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. That's right. That is a fact. Our flesh. Paul comes along and he's... Christ does too. But Paul comes along and he's helping us with this because many questions come out of just a statement like that from Jesus. We are all enslaved in our lower self, our flesh. You would think this verse in chapter 7, verse 18, would just settle it for the Christian. Okay, I got it. I got it. Where I stand with Christ is based on my love for him, my desire to obey him. And the sin that I do that I hate does not undo what he has done on the cross. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh. You see that distinction? That's why I brought out the obedience of the heart. As stated in chapter 6, part of what we just stood and read a moment ago, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And don't you ever forget it. Nothing in your lower self, nothing in your carnal nature, nothing naturally about you is appealing to God. And he continues, For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Not in the flesh. You'll never find it there. The flesh is committed. It feels almost obligated to disagree with God. It is committed. It, is, it will always let the word of God uh, be trampled on if it's given the chance. But God never makes it easy for us to feel comfortable in our sin, in our trespass, or in our carnality. So it goes back to the first statement that I made. Our hatred for sin in Christ is an indicator that we belong to Christ. It's the conviction that is critical, not the comfort or the comfort of faith, knowing that. And I hope to bring that out as we move forward, especially when we get to Aaron and Moses. I think they provide great illustrations of this. But grace does not say that sin does not matter. It never says that. But it counters our breaking of the, of the commandments. Grace counters sin, not justice. One of my favorite illustrations is every time you see an airplane, you see this principle spiritually at work. The law of aerodynamics. It's one law overcoming another law, the law of gravity, without violating the law of gravity. It overcomes it. It's another law. Both laws are there. But one is prevailing over the other. And that is the difference between your flesh and its weakness, the gravity that sucks you down, and the aerodynamics that causes you to rise above it. In the eyes of God, that's what he is looking at. Our reception of the work of his son on the cross. And Paul knew, again, that 
Some would accuse him of preaching no law of Moses and no law in Jesus. He was ahead of them. He says, no, there are laws. And there are higher laws also. And no one has anything better than this. And there are always those who try to dismiss God's call for obedience. They are the lawless ones. Paul said to Timothy, command the rich not to be arrogant. That's a commandment. Now, once you tell that to somebody who's rich, who struggles, not all people, rich people struggle with this. Um, so anyway, when he tells the person that, that, that rich person may say, I agree. But man, it's really hard to turn it off. It's hard to be humble when you're the best, I've heard. <laughs> it's just a fact of the flesh, not the spirit. And so he's going to put them at ease as he deals with this through chapter 8. An attitude which exposes sin. An attitude which espouses righteousness. And that's how God boasted on Job. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, blameless and up, an upright man. One who fears God and shuns evil. Now, he was not sinless. But from God's perspective, he knew the heart of Job. I need a solution to this sin problem that I was born into without my permission and I can't get out of. I need a Savior. And sinners repeat sin and therefore need repeated grace. Recurrent grace, the flow of grace. And I know you do too. We all do. There is more to God, there's more to God's children than sin. <gasps> it's a fact. Now we go to Numbers chapter 32. Moses had been on the mountain receiving instruction about the tabernacle for the people to worship at, to approach God. But while he was there, debauchery was at the foot of the mountain. The people had given themselves over to carnal passions and lust. And Moses comes down and he sees this taking place. He left Aaron, who at this time is now the high priest in Israel, his own brother. He left him in charge to see that these things don't happen. And there they were, violating the already given Ten Commandments, the first one. The most essential one. For without the first commandment, the others don't, don't matter. You shall have no other gods in my sight. And God sees everywhere. Idolatry. And I said to them, this is when Moses comes down, he confronts Aaron. And Aaron, this is his, we know the story. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire. And out came this calf. And Moses said, look at me, Aaron. Do I look that stupid? He didn't say that. He doesn't say anything to Aaron. Directly. Because he's more to Aaron than that act of sin. Moses knew it and God knew it. But what did Moses do? Verse 25 of Exodus 32. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Remember that the next time the pastor doesn't cooperate with a sin or something you're, you're, you're doing wrong. Aaron did not restrain them. You don't want that. 
Anyway, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. You can bet Aaron came too. You see what he did? He, lo- he doesn't say, Aaron, are you crazy? What are you talking about? He just threw it in. A- he saw more to Aaron than that sin. And if Moses can see it, so can God. We can stay on that story a while, but I think the points are made. And so verse 16 now, Romans 6, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Now again, he's on a spiritual level. He's not itemizing sin. He knows the answer, of course, that there's a vast difference between a POW and a traitor. Both of them are on the enemy's side, physically, but not on the inside. This is given to us in Ezekiel chapter 1. This is Ezekiel that receives these great visions of God. He's a priest in Israel, and he's taken into captivity into Babylon. He doesn't want to be there. He's not a traitor against his country. He's a prisoner. And it's the same for Daniel, who arrived there before him. They were prisoners, but they were not traitors. That's the believer's life. And so whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness, there's no third choice. It's like, you know, you're either a male or a female. There's no third choice. Or fourth. (laughs) I got that one in. (laughs) Verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. He doesn't say, well, now that you're all perfect people because you've come to Christ, what's the point of writing to you about this conflict, this dichotomy? No, he's trying to help them because he knows they're being, some of them are being slammed by guilt. And I can't stop. You know, I just get, well, there wasn't so much sin in those days because there were no automobiles. <laughs> sin really didn't kick in until we started driving. And, you know, <laughs> When, when self-driving cars come along, you'll still be just as much a sinner. God honors sincerity, not insincerity. He does not honor dishonesty. He doesn't wink at it. Yet, sincerity enough is not enough. There must be action. The heart's quest for God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God, for they shall be filled. When? When will I be filled? Well, when I, when I leave this life, for sure. But he said, Jeremiah points this out to a people who are very dishonest, and you will seek me. He's talking about when God finally gets to have a people who want him. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13 See, perseverance belongs to obedience. Satan doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to know that the law of perseverance overcomes the law of failure. Luke Luke 22, verse 28. But you are those, Jesus said to his apostles, who have continued with me in my trials. So the differences lie in this life, in salvation, and 
it includes these things. Disobedience in the heart versus obedience in the, in the heart. Slavery, an enslaved mind, is not interested in what God says, versus freedom, a Savior-influenced mind. Yeah, it's a battle for the mind. It always has been since Eden. One of the differences between the salvation and those who don't have it is the fruitless life versus the fruitful life. Eternal death versus eternal life. There are differences. And you can't get to the good side of these things if you are determined to not accept the terms of salvation which we call the gospel. So he says here, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, that's the old nature. A slave is actually under complete control of their master. And those who are willful servants uh, in this life without Christ are slaves of sin. And that's why he's making this distinction. Once you were slaves of sin, now you're not. But now you still sin. That does not necessarily mean you are its slave. Now, some of you might might just, uh, you know, you'll be calling on this if... The next time you sin and you feel disgusted with yourself, you feel unworthy and all those things that come with it. Yes, because of your relationship with Christ. And the grace of Christ is there and you persevere because if you don't, if you say, look, I just can't do this, I quit. Well, now you're not persevering. You've played into Satan's hands and you've become a willing victim. Second Timothy chapter 2, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Those are the ones that have uh, their minds, the, the battle for the mind is not won for Christ, it is lost. And again, since Eden, it has been a battle for the mind, for the soul. He also says here, In verse 17, yet you. That is another distinction. And it reinforces the believer's sense of belonging to Christ. He says, but you. But you. You're different. In spite of your fallen nature, you're different. And the distinction is in either the lordship of Christ or outside of his lordship. And he says, you've obeyed from the heart. That's the new nature. Eager for God's truth. Eager for his fellowship. Eager for his companionship. Looking forward to heaven where you won't be a sinner anymore. Romans 10.10 For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What if he said with the hands one earns salvation? He never says that. The Bible never teaches that. Our decision to believe the gospel brings permanent results, provided it is more than an intellectual thing. It is from the heart. Obedience functions as the only tangible expression of faith. How else can you see faith? Well, you can hear someone tell you about it, but obedience demonstrates it. Even the quest to obey, because you could not have that quest to obey Christ without Christ without him being in your heart. And we can demonstrate our obedience by where we stand, which I read from Exodus a moment ago when Moses said all those, uh, Exodus 32, verse 25, um, then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Well, I'm there. I'm on the Lord's side. I know many, if not all of you are too. Your failures 
Let them teach you, but do not let them enslave you. Do not let them terrorize you to the point where you are petrified and you can't move. Then you'll be fruitless. You'll be hammered. You'll be tossed to and fro. A person that is desperate is not living the faith life. You know, the person that tells everybody, runs over here, asks for advice, runs over here, asks for more advice, or the same thing, and asks anybody they can get until everybody's now avoiding them. Because they're not trusting the Lord. I'm not wrong. There's nothing wrong with asking for advice and sharing something. But it does not mean that we can just be reckless and careless with this and, and just, uh, just cave in as though we were in a state of desperation. John fifteen twenty seven, And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And there again, Jesus points to perseverance. The saved persevere, persevere out of obedience. Why else would you? Why would you persevere with Christ in this life? Unless it was for obedience or maybe greed. There, there are those that teach, you know, you just hang in there and God's going to make you rich kind of a thing. You just give the church more money and God will give you more money. Well, that, of course, is one of the distortions that exist. And that's on them. But that is never what is taught in Scripture. Jesus, speaking to a church, said, Because you have kept my command to persevere. So it's a command. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. How those who say we're gonna, the church goes through the tribulation, I don't understand how they twist the scripture to not mean that we're not going to go through the tribulation. And there it is. We'll go through tribulation in the world. You'll have a lot of tribulation, Jesus said. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But the great tribulation, such as the world has never known. And those who say, well, we're going through it now. Well, where's Antichrist? Because he's the one that brings that tribulation. Anyway, he says that uh, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the entire world to test those who dwell on the earth. You are going to escape that. But what's the key ingredients there? Well, they kept his word and they persevered. And when you see an old timer, a, a Christian that's been around for a while, and then later in years they start getting goofy, it's because they've left the fundamental teaching. It's not magic. It's not, oh, I sure hope that doesn't happen to me. Then stick to the fundamentals. Stick to the basics of the word. Don't get so caught up in what you've learned that you think you can be more merciful than Christ. That you can be nicer to sinners than Jesus can be nicer to sinners. There's a whole thing with the seeker-friendly church nonsense. That one of my, on the list of fads that I've seen come and go based on poor doctrine, that was one of the big ones. Seeker-friendly, don't tell them they're sinners. They might repent. <laughs> tell them they're wonderful. No, a seeker-friendly church says, listen, thus says the Lord. Uh, God is looking to save the world, but those who come to him only will benefit from that. So he writes here, now this is nice. Well, it's all nice, but you'll like this one, I think. That form of doctrine to which you were delivered. I'm in verse 17 at the bottom of the verse. That Greek word for formed has to do with a mold, a dye that you would pour molten metal into, and it would take on that shape. 
And the believer is the molten metal poured into that form. The doctrine is the form. We're poured into this. And the outcome is that we're one with it. That, that we, we would call it Christ-likeness. And we are handed over to this, it says, to which you were delivered. 1 Corinthians 15. I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. There it is, back to Moses again. Where do you stand? That's positional salvation. It's based on where I stand, not my failures. If God says, well, I'm going to add up your failures on this side and your non-failures on this side. And if you have less failures than victories, then you can come into heaven. Then again, heaven would be a lonely place. Nobody would get in. But that's not what he does. He says, where do you stand? I stand at the cross. I stand at the empty tomb. I stand in Christ Jesus. Verse 18 and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought they were slaves of sin. See, you've got to keep up with this language. It does not always feel like I've made the switch. It does not always feel like I'm being righteous. Or then I would have pride, right? Look at me. Hey, did you see that? See how righteous I am? It doesn't work that way. Faith knows better. And it knows better than feelings. My hatred for sin, again... Because it is an offense to Christ. Verifies this. So positionally, again, where I stand, because of Christ, I am free from the doom of sin. You might say, you know, you're kind of repeating yourself. Yeah, I am. Why is that? Because it's something that sinners seem to keep forgetting. And become legalistic or lawless. Instead of balancing it and understanding that the proof that I belong to Christ is my perseverance against sin. Because of my love for him, primarily. Also because sin is harmful, of course. That's why he has prohibited it. But after this life, we jettison sin. As, you know, the space shuttle jettisoned those fuel tanks. You just get rid of that stuff as you're going up. Um, in an aerodynamic mood. <laughs> Verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawless leadings, of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. <laughs> the trick to, to verse by verse, a trick or a what makes it a little tricky, that's what I want, in verse by verse, is as you're reading the verse, you want to make your comments before you forget them. And so the verse becomes a competitor with your own ideas of what the verse is saying. And a rookie, uh, of course, will... <laughs> of which I am. Anyway, Paul says to make his point, I speak in human terms. He's encouraging them to redirect their behavior now. Well, what should he do, knowing that we're saddled with sin? Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Well, the Old Testament sacrifices were dead sacrifices. It'd bring it up, it would be alive, but then you'd have to kill it 
and then offer it. Well, the believer's life should be presented to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Dead to self, alive to Christ. Now, the Lord will ask some of his children to die for him. But he asks all of his children to live for him. To bring glory to him. And thus the conflict is on. And so the next time you mess up, and Satan comes, you know, making you tr- feel you're not a Christian. What do you call yourself? What do you think? You know, you, you, this is what, I, what I'm preaching on. You say, well, right now I'm not going through a struggle with my salvation. Right now I'm struggling with faith and fear and anxiety and other things like that. This is the foundation to overcoming those things. Your stance in Christ to be able to say, yeah, but I side with Christ. I will trust him. If you cannot demonstrate a resolve when it comes to your salvation, how are you going to do it in faith for problems? They're connected. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to sin. Verse 20, our carnal nature, that bottom feeder, was happy to be a slave of disobedience, and it's still that way. But you were freed in regard to righteousness. Well, before Christ, we did not care about his classifications. We might not have liked certain things that are sin, but again, they weren't linked to Christ. We were essentially asleep on the Titanic. But when we come to Christ, all that changes. Because we were no good to him before then. Now we can. We have the tremendous opportunity. Especially if you belong to a good church. You have such opportunity. And there are so many places in this world. That can really use a good church. But it's so hard to establish one. It's so hard to keep it going. There's so much opposition from other Christians. It's very difficult. But it is doable. And it is worth it. And you should know that. Because how else would you know that? Unless you were involved in ministry. Long term. Uh, The problem with Paul writing to Philemon. He didn't know that Philemon. Just because he was a believer. He didn't know if he'd do the right thing. He wasn't sure that that thing would blow up in his face. It's the same today. You go tell a Christian. Listen. You know. We don't don't do something like that in the church. It's a policy. You don't know if they're going to go off on you. Because they do. And they're going to stick it to you also. Well, we're all in this mess together. Can't be too hard on them. Uh, but at the same time, you can't, you can't yield. And so the next time you find yourself saying, why aren't there more good churches? Well, that's part of the reason. Well, anyway, if, if you were free in regard to, you were free in regard to righteousness. You weren't under the conviction of the law. The prodigal son was freed from the laws of his father's house when he went away from his father's house. But his broken life well pictures what Paul is speaking of here. He was unsuccessful enough in life to crave home, to go back to his father. Esau was too successful in life to crave God. And that spirit was transferred to his descendants. And God picks up on that through the prophet Malachi. And speaking about that attitude, he says, Esau, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Jacob sought the Lord in spite of it. And there's another example of the flesh and the spirit, that dichotomy within. 
Jacob wanted God. But he was up to no good a lot of times. He was still in the flesh. And yet, the spirit was alive. In verse 21, what fruit did you have when in the things of which you are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death? Well, Peter put it this way, your aimless conduct. Verse 21 again, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Which which points to the fact that they are saved. They are ashamed of that old life. They hate that sin. And that is where the shame comes in. Lot's wife was not so. And that's why Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. She looked back at Sodom with longing eyes. She disobeyed a simple commandment. And she perished. And so Jesus said, don't forget that teaching. Live like you've learned something from your Bible. It will benefit you. When the prodigal son came home, he didn't expect anything. He certainly didn't expect how his father received him. But he had nothing. Luke chapter chapter 15, verse 16, and no one gave him anything. When he was out in the world, he got nothing of any value to his father. And that's true of us. As you're in the world, you will get nothing of any value to your father from the world. Well, you you can learn things for sure, but they have to be filtered through Christ. And so we move on for the end of those things is death. Verse 22, but now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, the end, everlasting life. Again, he's speaking to them as though they're believers because they are. And he's not chastising them. He's not even rebuking, he's not rebuking them even a little bit. He's just laying it out because he understands That if Christians don't realize how powerful the salvation is that Christ has given us, then they're going to be relatively useless. Or they're going to be a problem at some point. If you don't have that blessed assurance, how can you transfer it? How can you share it? How can you stand in the faith if you're unsure of where you stand? Because you've done something wrong and your theology doesn't help you through it. Bible learning theology is supposed to show up in your life. Especially when there's pressure. That would be in the face of sickness, the death of loved ones, ministry. You can just keep adding to that list. It is under pressure that we find out what is on the inside. And uh, others have gone before us, and they have done well. They've done very well. So Paul, again, treats them as free slaves from sin, but slaves of Christ. Again, Jesus, John chapter 8, verse 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Oh, no, I don't believe that. I just committed a sin that I hate. Yeah, but what did Jesus say? How can you ever get the upper hand if you don't believe these things? So the true believer's heart is delighted to be enslaved under these terms nonetheless. Free and yet potentially fruitful. As opposed to free from Christ 
and fruitless. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, there's a payday for sinners. They don't believe that, and that's why they remain sinners, many of them. Uh, these are poor rewards for a wasted life. And so when the one that has rejected the truth of Christ dies, they get nothing, nothing to show for this life. It's all judgment. And that uh, there's an attitude that goes with the unbeliever that says, well, so far so good. I've made it this far, this way, I'll make it all the way. Which is like a person falling from a skyscraper. So far, so good. Till they hit the ground. These parallels, these illustrations, are fair pickings to make points. That's why Paul says, I speak to you in human terms. I'm making these illustrations so you can get them. That's why Jesus gave parables. I'm almost done. Peter talks about the wages of unrighteousness. In 2 Peter, he writes in the second chapter, but these like natural brute beasts, these who are opposed to the gospel, will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They're unbridled, that is. There are spots and blemishes, forsaking the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So things do count. None can earn eternal life. That is our message. It is the gift freely given to those according to the prerogative of God. And I close with this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, it wouldn't be the gospel if my failures could make it bad news. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, one would think it would be so easy to just hear the gospel, receive it, and never look back. But the challenges, they do come, and they are serious oftentimes. And yet you've given us a faith to love, to enjoy, to implement. We who believe, we thank you. We're always thirsty and hungry for more. We who believe, our hearts, Lord, are made pure by you, and blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. But there are others that don't have this pure heart, this heart of desire for you. There are others that want to shape you into the fashion of their own imagination or just receive a shape that some other sinner has fashioned for them. If you have been listening, watching, and you've not opened your heart to Christ, you're dead in your sin. You will die one day, and you will be judged, and your sins will be there. And there's no amount of bargaining or pleading that will take them away. Only the blood of Christ. The questions you may have to challenge that truth, they have answers, but you've got to come to Him. If you want to open your heart to receive Him, then do it and make this prayer and mean it. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. 
I am guilty before you. And the judgment is upon me. But I want you to forgive me. I want to escape the judgment. I want to be saved from the judgment to come. And so I give my life to you. I come to you right now. I admit my sin and I ask you to forgive me. To receive me. That from this day forward I would stand where the Christians stand. That I would be under your lordship. That you would be both my Lord and my Savior. And I give my life to you. If anyone has made this prayer this morning in earnest, God will receive you. There's no question about that. The judgment has been bound. But you're also going to be invited at the end of the service to step forward, make your confession known. Don't be ashamed of it. And now, Lord, we commit these things into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.